I want to read a, a book to you. Um, I remember the good old days reading books to my boys when they would go to bed at night. And, uh, and it, was, it was sort of fun. Jenny did probably more of the um, reading out of the books than I did. I tended to make up a lot of stories uh, as I sat there in bed with the boys. But I thought I'd reminisce this morning by reading you all a story of Hansel and Gretel. Okay? It's one of my favorites. So let me read this to you. Okay? And you're thinking, this is church. We'll get to the Bible. Just relax. I know. Last week we said to pray that we are a what? A church that preaches the truth, right? We'll get there. Okay. Once upon a time, there lived a poor woodcutter. I'm sorry. I wish we should have put this on the screen. I guess we're not as techy as after all. With his wife and his children, Hansel and Gretel. One day, the children overheard their stepmother say, We don't have enough to eat. We must leave your children in the woods or we'll starve. Okay. Did we really read this kind of stuff to our kids? I'm sorry. We don't have anything in the cupboard, so let's just kick them outside. Okay. The next day, the children were led deep into the forest, then left behind. Gretel said, however will we get home? Hansel said, don't worry. I left the 12 breadcrumbs to show us the way. Now, okay, I'm, I'm struggling with this. They didn't have anything to eat, but yet he's just throwing food on the ground. <laughs> Who wrote these stories? Okay. But when they looked along the forest path, they had found no breadcrumbs because the wild birds had eaten every one. Gretel began to cry. Her brother said, you see, we'll find our way and we'll find some food too. But all the same, they did not. Dun, dun, dun. They wandered in hunger for days, deeper into the forest, until at last they came upon a cottage made of gingerbread with cookies as a roof and windows of transparent sugar. Yummy. I'll eat a little bit of this, said Hansel, and you can eat some of that. And just as Hansel broke off a piece of gingerbread, a woman poked out her head and said, Nibble, 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 little mouse, who's nibbling at my house? Then she said, Please, children, do come in. As soon as they were inside, the woman locked up Hansel and put Gretel to work. She told poor Gretel, fetch some water, cook something for your brother. When he's nice and fat, I'll eat him up. The old woman was really an evil witch. Did we really read this cannibalism to our kids? <sighs> That's it. That, there's, there's no more pages. That's it. Sorry. All right. So if you would turn with me. We're sort of left in a predicament here, aren't we? Somebody ripped out the last few pages of... My book, there, there's, there's no ending, and that's sort of bothersome, isn't it? I mean, that probably doesn't sit well with most of us because we want to know how the story ends. There's, there's always a, an ending, and, well, it's, it's got to be a happy ending, right, because we read it to our kids, but it's, it's not there. You know why we're so much struggling with something like this? I believe it's because we're such a very impatient culture. Just sort of think this. We've grown up with it, especially in the last 10, 15 years, having it what? Our way. Right? Burger King told us that. Have it your way, right? Fast food, instant gratification. We live in a Google the answer society, don't we? I really don't know to that. Uh, just a second. Siri? You know, we talk to our phone and it gives us the answer. So a story with no ending or a delayed ending is ridiculous and absolutely bizarre to us. A lot of you know me. You know that I will record things on TV like a, maybe a show or mostly a, a ball game because I don't want to watch the commercials. So I will pretend the game didn't happen until two hours later and then I'll watch the game and just zip through the commercials. And if my team is losing, then I'll fast forward until a point where I think maybe they're going to catch up and win. And if not, I just won't watch it. I can do that, Right? That's the kind of impatient culture we live in. Now, why am I starting off that way? 
Because whenever we open up the Bible, here's the incredible thing. We have the story from front to back. We can start a story. I can start preaching to you a story. You already know the ending. And so it makes it sort of difficult to really live the story as they did in biblical times. You know what I'm saying? We know that if Joshua is going to walk around a city called Jericho, we already know what's going to happen. The wall is going to fall. No big deal. But could you imagine the people that in that time, as they started to walk on day one, as they walked around that huge city, and then they went back to their tents and they thought that was it? We just walked around a city. We didn't do anything. And they got day two and they walked again. Now, see, we read the Bible. We read the story. We know that on day seven, they're going to scream and shout and the wall is going to fall down. But on day two, they didn't know that. So to be very patient, right? Turn in your Bibles. There's a great story in John 11. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. And I want us this morning, as we look at this story in John chapter 11... I want us to read the story as if we don't know the ending. As if somebody's ripped out the back pages of the story and we're sort of curious. I wonder, I wonder how this story is going to end. John chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling them, your dear friend is very sick. Now again, let's, pre- let's approach this story as if we have no clue how this is going to end. And all we know, we got a, a sick man here by the name of Lazarus. And what do we know about Lazarus? If we were to study more in this scripture, we know in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38, we first meet Mary and Martha, and Jesus goes to their house, and Lazarus is most likely there. They live in a town called Bethany. So in Bethany is a place where Jesus would often visit. As he'd go from one place to another, Bethany's right in the middle of this town, and right through his section of where he would go. We know more about the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, than we do about him. We know things that Mary and Martha said. We saw things that they did. But Lazarus, I can't find anywhere we have a conversation with Lazarus where he's talking. We don't see it in there. We don't have any kind of documentation of his words or actions as much. What we do know is that Jesus had a close relationship with this family. So you can imagine Jesus being in there and in their house often and getting to know them and close enough that Lazarus is considered a close friend, one whom Jesus loves. So when Lazarus is sick, it's natural for Mary and Martha, who has witnessed the miracles of Jesus, to say, hey, let's get word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And he's, he's pretty sick. This isn't just a, a, a fever or a cold. This is, this is something that looks like it's going to get worse. And it was expected if he can miraculously meet the needs of so many others, and well, then he can definitely meet the needs of Lazarus. But if we read correctly and we look in the scripture, Mary and Martha did not specifically ask Jesus to come heal Lazarus. It's not in there, is it? Look back at that verse and see. You know, perhaps they felt they didn't need to. That maybe it's just enough to simply tell Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. Your friend, the one you love, is, is sick. That's it. 
Now, we know from other stories, Jesus is capable of healing anybody. We know from other stories, we had a centurion who came to Jesus and said, just say the word and my servant will be well. You don't need to come. So we know Jesus has the capability to take care of and heal Lazarus from a distance. But can you imagine what it was like for Mary and Martha in this moment at the bedside of Lazarus? He is sick. He's not doing well. They sent somebody off to go tell Jesus, your friend, the one you love, is sick. That's it. They didn't say come back or heal him or anything. Just He's sick. That was their prayer. How many times have we prayed to Jesus? We said, God, my son right now is sick. And maybe we go into a little bit more deeper of a prayer. Take away the fever. Take away the sickness. Heal my child, God. But as Mary and Martha are over the bedside of Lazarus, they, they've had their conversation with Jesus, and they're caring for him and worried about him, and the anxiety level is probably starting to rise some. What was it like for them as they waited? They waited for their message to get to Jesus. They waited to see, would there be a message coming back? Would, would Jesus come back? We've all been there, right? Being in a a hospital next to the bed of somebody we're concerned about, maybe at home with that person who's sick or hurting, wondering, did Jesus get my message? Did he hear my prayer? Well, they sent the message. That was their prayer. This was how they communicated to Jesus. They didn't have to get on a knee and look up. They like they went to him face to face where they sent the message off. Now, 18 miles away from Bethany, the message arrives. Lord, your dear friend is very sick, or the one you love is sick. What does this mean? Was it their prayer? Sort of sounds like a matter of fact, right? Lazarus is sick. Okay. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard about this, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. The sickness will not end in death. We just heard it, right? Jesus just said, this sickness will not end in death. No death. But what will happen? The glory of God. The glory of God will be seen. How incredible, how awesome, how mighty is our God? You're going to see it. It will be displayed. But we need to remember this, that just because you love Jesus, and just because Jesus loves you, doesn't mean you're exempt from today's problems or from sickness or from financial issues or even death. Church, listen very carefully because there's a lot of people think, well, I'm a Christian. I love God. God loves me. It's rainbows, ponies, and flowers forever, right? It's all good. Charles Spurgeon once said this, the love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still Men, whether you're a man of God or a woman of God, you're still a man, you're still a woman. You're not exempt from sickness. You're not exempt from death. And sometimes we forget that we serve a a God bigger than our problems and our, our current issues do not define us. They do not dictate our value because sometimes we think that, oh, I'm going through a rough situation, so God must be mad at me or I must be a horrible person because of this is going on in my life. We invite Jesus into our life. He does amazing things for his glory. 
not for our glory. And just because we don't hear something immediately when we pray doesn't mean that we are not loved anymore or that we have no value. Despite sickness, despite death, or delays, or unanswered prayers, God is still there. Look at the person next to you and say, God is here. Tell them. Absolutely. We forget that. We think because something horrible is going on, somebody's sick, somebody's hurt, something rotten's going on, it's like, he's not here. Oh, he's here. Remember, this is not for your glory. This is for his. So be patient because just because you haven't seen the end of the story doesn't mean it's not going to be awesome. Look at verse 5 with me. Back to John chapter 11, verse 5. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed there for the next two days. At this point in time, we're thinking, what? Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Now, John reminds us that Jesus really did genuinely love Lazarus. Yes, he loves her brother. It's an important thing to remember this, right? Showing that a, a testing of faith was not a denial of his love. Just because he waited two days doesn't mean he loved them any less. It seems strange that Jesus didn't immediately act upon that great need, that this delay probably mystified his disciples, thinking, he just heard Lazarus is sick, why aren't we going? Two days later, all of a sudden, I don't know what sparked the conversation. We don't know what urged Jesus to say, it's time, let's go. But he said, let's go. Maybe one of the disciples said, oh yeah, remember that time we were talking to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? And Jesus like, oh yeah, Lazarus, he's sick. Guys, let's go. It's been a couple of days. I don't think it went down that way. Or maybe it was just out of the blue, Jesus sitting there and he's healing somebody else that was sick. He goes, oh. I should probably do that for Lazarus. Hey, guys, let's go. I don't think it went down that way either. We don't know how it went down, but we do, do know this. At the right time, Jesus said, let's go. We forget it's not our timetable, it's his. The mother of Jesus at the wedding, remember, she tried to hurry Jesus. Jesus, why don't you do this? He goes, now's not the time. Jesus' family came to grab him one time out of the house. They said, now's not the time. See, Jesus has a timetable for how he works. And in despite of what we think would work best, Jesus says, now's the time. Let's go. And it's very interesting if you look at the scripture. He says, let's go back to where? Judea, right? Where was Lazarus? Bethany. So as he travels through this region, he brings up Judea. He doesn't say Lazarus or, or the Bethany, but he mentions Judea. Now, I'm wondering why he mentioned this, except for the fact that just to spark a little conversation with his disciples. Because as soon as he said that, his disciples were like, whoa, ho, ho. Jesus, don't know if you remember this. Not too long ago, a few days, we were there. Do you remember what happened? Now, some of us might be sitting and go, no, what happened? Take your Bibles, you're in John 11, right? Go back one page to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 31. In John chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Once again, the people picked up some stones to kill Jesus. And Jesus said, Hey, at my Father's direction, I've done many good works. 
for which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You're a mere man and you claim to be God. Now, they were really upset with Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God. They picked up these rocks. They picked up these big stones. And by law, if you claim that, you could be stoned. The rocks were thrown at you until you were dead. That's what stoning meant back in the day. All right? And when you look at this and you think about this, Jesus has said, hey, let's all head back to Judea now. And his disciples are like, whoa, that's still fresh. That pain is like really close right now. We remember this. They objected to the move. There, there was no quick vote. There was no, hey, yeah, great idea. There was objection. There was a reminder that not too long ago, they were almost killed by the hands of angry people. They didn't like this. Disciples reminded a time in the past in which they were emotionally distraught, physically threatened, not a good memory. The pain quarter struck with those words. Emotions resurface. There was a fear of death. There's anger towards these religious leaders who hated them. And when those emotions all collided along with, hey, we're going to follow Jesus, now we've got issues. I'm sure some of you have been there too. You have past pain. And sometimes we deal with these painful memories. And other times we just store them away, right? When you've gone through something painful, you're just like, I'm just going to tuck that away. I do not want to deal with it. And then suddenly somebody says something, you see something, you hear a song, and all of a sudden, it's all those emotions start to resurface. And you're like, I don't want to go through this again. I do not want to feel this pain again. I do not want to see what I saw. I do not want to feel what I felt. I do not want to go through what I went through. But you brought it back up, and it hurts. Athletes... A lot of times they will change their workouts. They will change their routines. They will change how they did things because, you know what? Their opponent beat them. Well, when we played this team, they beat us. You know what? I don't like losing, so we're going to change how we prepare when we go to face them again. Emotionally, if you're in a bad marriage relationship and you were divorced and you were hurt, you most likely is like, you know what? I do not want to fall in love again because I don't want to go through another breakup. I don't want to be hurt again. Maybe spiritually, as we sort of talked about this last week, you have a bad church experience. A lot of people have bad church experiences, right? I've had them. You've had them. So you go to a new church, and many of us had that experience of that with that former pastor or that program or those people or whatever it may be, right? And you felt abused or you felt hurt, and now you're sitting in a new church, and all of a sudden somebody brings it up, and those feelings resurface, and you're like, oh, I don't want to go through that again. Maybe you failed a class in school for your education. You thought, you know what? I don't want to ever do that again. I'll never forget taking analytic geometry, trigonometry my junior year in high school. I wanted to be a math teacher. I really did. I thought I was going to go to this small school in Iowa and make uh, math as my major, be a math teacher. And then I took that class. And that class, I won't go into the details of my teacher... It's probably my fault, but when you're a kid, you blame the teacher, right? Okay. But analytic geometry, trigonometry, when she stood in front of the class that first day and said, 
I've never taught this before, but we'll all learn together. (laughs) Downhill ever since, right? That year was a rough year in that class. And it was like, it was painful. And I didn't do well, and I didn't like it. And that said, done, not going that direction, right? There are painful times in our life, whether it's physically, whether it's emotionally, whether it's spiritually, whether it's intellectually, whatever it may be, they're unfortunate. But we can learn from them. Just like the disciples learned from this situation. Our past is tucked away in that place we don't want to recall. And the disciples heard the word Judea, and suddenly the pain resurfaced. Objection rises. And soon the disciples are questioning Jesus' decision. Now, we were following you for a while, Jesus, but now the pain has resurfaced. Not sure if I want to follow you. They knew it would be a dangerous situation. Verse 16, though, Thomas. Remember, what's Thomas known for? What's his nickname? He's what? Doubting Thomas, right? We forget. He's so well known for that moment, but we forget about this moment. It's like daredevil Thomas here, not doubting. I mean, this guy is like revs it up. Look at him, verse 16. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to the other disciples, Hey, let's go too. Let's all die with Jesus. Freedom! And he probably had his face painted blue, just like William Wallace, right? Yeah, they just had to picture this, right? And then about that moment, all the other disciples are probably standing next to Thomas, like giving him rib shots. What are you doing? I don't want to die, right? But Thomas is all fired up. He's like, let's all go. Early it was, I'll go anywhere with you, Jesus. Next thing you know, it's like, hey, we don't want to go back to Judea. Now it's like, let's all go and die. And Jesus is like, oh, come on, guys. Trust me on this one. They're standing at this fork in the road, and the disciples have to make a decision, right? Knowing what waits them ahead, follow Jesus, possibly head into a situation that's going to be painful or hurtful. Would they trust their shepherd? Why go back to this place? Why face the pain of the past? Which causes us to stop and pause for a minute and let you ask this question. So church, do me a favor. Ask these questions to yourself. Can you trust God with today, knowing what happened to us yesterday? Can you trust God for today, Knowing what happened to you yesterday? The answer to that is yes. Yes, you can. Look at verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and now I'll go and I'll wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you'll really believe. Come on, let's go and see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to the other disciples, let's go and let's die with Jesus. When I think about that whole section, that part, that charge to return back, and, you know, first the bad news, they're going to return to a place of bad memories. And to top it off, Lazarus is already dead. So now you mix the emotions of anxiety along with sorrow, and you have a good chance of baking up some very painful and stubborn disciples and emotions. And Jesus says, I'm I'm glad I wasn't there. Okay, again, you know the end of the story. Pretend you don't know the end of the story. And Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. What's going on in your mind right now? Really, Jesus? The one you love is dead and you're glad? Now, if we are truly people who look at the story the way it should be, that should bother you. But if you're all churchy people who sat in Sunday school your whole life, you're like, no, that's the right answer. Because it's all about God, Jesus, and Bible. Right? 
we have those churchy answers. <clears throat> but when it comes here, that should bother us. And you sit there and say, time out. That's got to be a misprint, right? For his sakes, I'm glad. How could Jesus be glad at a time like this? Maybe somebody did throw a couple of stones and they did hit him in the head. He's not thinking straight, right? Why would he say this? When you come to a passage that causes confusion about God or about his son, Jesus Christ, or about the Holy Spirit, church, this is what you do. You stop and say, okay, it's a little confusing. But what is the nature of God? What is the nature of Jesus Christ? What is the nature of the Holy Spirit? Weigh that out with what's happening in the story. You look at the story and you say, okay, it's a little confusing, but you know what I know about Jesus? Jesus loves me. Jesus hates death. Jesus loves people. Jesus cares for me. I know his nature. So there's something behind what he just said that I'm going to discover soon. So you read on. You read on. So let's do this. Picking up our Bibles, going to verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been dead in his grave for four days. Four days. Bethany is only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to the Lord, Lord, if you only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, yes, Martha said, I know, I know. He'll rise when everyone else rises on the last day. I've been in that class, Jesus. Jesus said, no, no. I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me, believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Now, Martha, toss away the Sunday school answer. Yes, in the end day, we all rise. No, no, toss it out. Martha, do you really believe this truth? Church, do you really believe this truth? That if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, that someday when you die, you will see him again. You will rise from the dead on that resurrection day. And you'll be in the presence of God. And you'll see all others who have had that same faith. Do you really believe that? Verse 27, yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him, verse 31. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she's going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. That's raw emotion, is it not, church? How many times have we said, God, if only you would have. We've been there, haven't we? That's raw emotion. We're almost like, I feel bad that I got that way with God. I feel bad that I got emotional with God. But I believe he wants that. He welcomes that. Here she comes at the feet of Jesus, and she just lets it all out. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, not at her. So I think that's where a lot of people get confused. If I go and get honest with Jesus, he's going to get all mad at me. 
he was deeply troubled. Verse 34, where have you put him, he asked. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. The people were standing nearby and he said, see how much he loved them? But someone said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he kept Lazarus from dying? We get to the climax of this story. It's pretty amazing what happens here. And we look what's going on. And again, we've had the privilege of knowing and studying the story after it happened. But can you imagine being on the site in that moment? Verse 38, we read, once more again, Jesus was deeply moved. He was what? Deeply moved. He's deeply troubled. And we first witnessed that one, verse 33, when he was all angry. Now, I studied this, and you find out the scripture says it was a deep anger. In the Greek word, it's embry meo mai. Don't ask me to say that again, okay? But it means to be deeply agitated. To snort like a horse is angered. If any of you are on the farm and you have horses and you, you hear that horse just get all fired up, and that's not how it does it, okay? But if it snorts, okay? If it, if it would do that, okay. Jesus is snorting almost like a horse. Not making that sound, but that's the kind of anger. He's rearing up. He's mad at death. He's not mad at Mary or Martha. He's mad at death. The scriptures say also that he was deeply troubled. He shook with emotion, literally trembled. And keep in mind, John's writing to the Greeks. Greeks believed in God's who were apathetic in emotion. They didn't have any. So this picture opens up the eyes of the Greeks that there is a God who does have emotion. So why is this happening again? It's obvious that the emotion that Jesus is experiencing in this moment right here was at the death of his dear friend. And he sees the pain of those around. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be like a sympathetic crier. You know what I mean? You see somebody else crying and you're like, I was okay until I saw them cry. I was okay until I saw them cry, right? I was okay until I saw them break down. Sort of that way. We were watching a movie called I'm Not Ashamed. It's the story of Rachel Scott and the Columbine shooting. If you've not seen it yet, it's an incredible movie. Some of you are like, I remember that day. I remember it too. As a youth pastor, I really remember that day. But watching the movie, even though I knew the ending, it got me. And then I'm looking at the high schoolers, all these junior high and high schoolers. We were together watching. There's about 40-something of us. And then they were, they were, some of them were like weeping. And I got up front to talk to them. And I couldn't talk because I'm one of those sympathetic cries. I saw them weeping. And it's like, if I, see a, if I see a teenager just truly worshiping God, I melt. If I see a teenager broke down and crying, I melt. Okay? It's just the way I'm wired. Okay? And Jesus, he sees those that are hurting around him, and he sees death, and he gets emotional. He's angry at death, and he weeps for those he loves. And for those of us who have ever sat there and think, does God care? Come back to this passage. Just come back to this passage and see how much God cares. Jesus loves me. This I know. Remember that? For the Bible tells me so. I want to tell you right now, Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? How do I know Jesus loves me? Because he weeps for me. He cries for me. He has raw emotion for me and for you. You are valued. You are loved. And he hates death. He hates it that death steals you away from him. The thief 
comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come to give life and give it abundantly. So when we see death, understand, that makes God mad. Let's read on. We're at verse 37. Some said this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he keep Lazarus from dying? Verse 38. Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been in there for four days. The smell will be terrible. She's being real, isn't she? It's kind of, in the King James, it probably says, it stinketh, right? Okay. <laughs> Again, sometimes we just do the old Sunday school thing, and we're just like, put yourself in that spot. Can you imagine going over to the graveyard, and somebody starts digging up and say, just open up the casket. <laughs> No, thanks. I really don't want to. It's, it's going to smell. It's, it's, gonna, it's not going to be good. And they didn't have all the embalming and stuff that we did. This could be nasty, right? Jesus responded, didn't I tell you you'd see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I say it out loud for the sake of these people standing here so they will believe that you sent me. So Jesus pauses. First of all, he says this. I want you all to be involved in this ministry with me. Okay? A couple of you guys, go roll the stone away. Come on, join me. Help out with the situation. They roll the stone away. Now, before anything else happens, okay, he just pauses and says, Father. And he prays to God. And he lets people know, you know what? There is a God above. And I have a relationship with him. And I'm going to thank you ahead of time, God, for what amazing things you're going to do. Now, I love what happens next. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. Now, I want to pause here for a second. This was a loud shout. When you look into understanding, uh, again, the, the, the words and the Greek and what's going on here, it's, it's an amazing thing, but his shout, his loud voice, the Greek word here is megas. It's the, where we get our word megaphone. Okay, so the voice that he used was loud and that come here is described as if you're yelling at your dog that takes off out the house and starts running through the neighborhood. You're like, come here. You know, it's like, come here, Fido. Okay, that's no, that's not it. It was a loud Lazarus. Come forth. It's powerful. And as we read what happens next. This is and the dead man came out his hands, his feet. Bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were there with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Remember, this is for God's glory. This wasn't just for the sake of Lazarus. I'm glad he died. You know why I'm glad he died? Because many people are going to believe as a result of this. He's not happy about death. Jesus was, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that he's dead. No, Jesus hates death. He hates sin. What was he glad about? He was glad about knowing that his glory was going to be seen in the end, which we didn't have the story. Neither did anybody else at that time. We do now. And because they saw and they were there, they were able to believe. Lazarus comes out. Some people say, why did, why did he say Lazarus come out? Because if he would have said dead man come out, all the tombs would have busted open and everybody would have been coming out. And here's something else to think about. Why didn't he do that? Because that was not the plan. Jesus could raise anybody from the dead. 
but today it was just Lazarus. Church, I want you to think about this. I believe that Jesus calls our names too. I believe a lot of us are bound right now by grave clothes. Wrapped up in some kind of sin that you just, you're struggling with. I was um, looking into some readings on this whole story. And Joanna Weaver talks about called mid-chamber living. And she said some of the tombs back in biblical times were made this way. There's, first of all, there's that opening that the stone was in front of. Roll that stone away, you got that opening. Then there's a, a, another chamber, and that chamber was actually had a couple benches in there. So families who were grieving, you could go into this mid-chamber and grieve for your loved one. And then there was the back chamber, the back room, in which the dead person was had the grave clothes on and was laid. And she shared that some people were so distraught by death that they actually moved some of their belongings into that mid-chamber area and they lived in there. Which is really disturbing, isn't it? But because they had such a hard time letting go of the one they love, they just they sort of like kept one foot in the grave. And it's like, I'm just going to stay here where you are. And it's, she called it mid-chamber living. And see, I believe a lot of us are doing that today. We've allowed the grave clothes of sin to wrap us up and keep us from walking out of that tomb and living a new life as Lazarus was living. Church, I believe Jesus is calling your name. Rex, come forth. Just put your name in there where Lazarus' name is. Is he calling your name? Is he calling you out today? Is he saying it's time for you to stop living among the dead? It's time for you to stop being wrapped up in all your grave clothes. It's time for you to have this ceasing of a mid-chamber life. Get out of the tomb. Get out of the grave. Strip yourselves of those grave clothes. You weren't meant to live in sin or dabble with sin. You're meant to live a new life. Leave the old one behind. I don't know if you ever heard the comments like this. Um, like at Christmas time, well, Santa only comes to the people who've been good, right? Or you've heard, they don't deserve such terrible things. They're such good people. They didn't deserve this, right? So those are the kind of comments that we make to say somebody's value and worth equates then with what should happen to them, right? Christian uh, apologist. Ravi Zachariah said this, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Amen? So church, when you show up at a church building, a Bible story, it's not about how do we make you good people. It's about how is Jesus going to make you alive and new and vibrant and living in a way that honors him. Bethany, actually, the town of Bethany where Lazarus lived, actually meant a house of misery. Isn't that crazy? But when Jesus showed up, what happened? It became a house of praise. It became a house of praise. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes misery and he turns it into praise. Worship team, would you please come forward? Here's the thing, church. Listen very carefully. We are helpless. We are full of sin. We are unable to get things done the way we want to do them. We can't get things done right. So we need help. Really, we are dead to God until he calls our name. And he calls us. He, he voices. He shouts. He doesn't whisper. And then we have to surrender. 
and our sin is forgiven and our life is made new. Now, I know I've shared this story with you before. I want to share it again, but this is what I mean. Probably about 14 years ago, as I was walking from my house across the parking lot to a church, I went through this, this field that had been plowed. And as I walked through, I found a golf ball. And then that golf ball, uh, it was all dirty and sort of messed up. And I got to the parking lot, and I did what every guy does with a ball in his hand when you get to a parking lot. You what? You bounce it, right? So I bounced that golf ball, and it didn't bounce up very high. And I thought, something's wrong with that golf ball. Got into the church, and there was about eight uh, students. We had a student leader meeting that day, and I was trying to disciple these young people to say, you are future leaders. So I was trying to meet with them on a weekly basis. I said, here, I got a job for you today. Take this golf ball and make it brand new. And they saw those dirt clods on it, messed up. And I said, but everybody's got to be involved. So all eight of them were working on polishing up, cleaning it up, and making it nice and as beautiful as they can make that golf ball look. But then we went back outside, took that golf ball, and we got outside and said, okay, let's, let's bounce it again. So we bounce it. It didn't bounce back up again. It stayed the same height as it did before. But see, that didn't make sense. We just gave it a brand new look. We gave it an extreme makeover. But it didn't change it. See, because that's what happens today. Extreme makeover of the house. Extreme makeover of, of ourselves. We try to make ourselves look good on the outside. We, we change the outlook of a building or we give a basketball or a football team new uniforms or a new stadium. We do all these extreme makeovers. But what is the issue? The issue was the core. The core of that ball had gone bad. The core of that ball was no longer good. It didn't matter what we did on the outside of that ball. The core needed to be changed. It doesn't matter what we do to make ourselves look good. You can, you can lose weight, get a haircut, get new clothes. You can paint your house, whatever you want to do. But if you don't change the core of the heart, it doesn't matter. Jesus calling. Are you listening? Get out of the grave. Strip yourself of those grave clothes. Let him come work in the core. Let him change your heart. Jesus loves me. This I know because I know he cares for me. He is the resurrection. He weeps for me. And then he celebrates it for his glory when I come walking out of that tomb. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for scripture and understanding that, God, this is an amazing story. I'm so glad we have a good ending. I'm so glad that the final pages weren't ripped out. That we were able to see what you did in the life of Lazarus. But God, now we got to look at our own life. And the question is, what are we going to do about our ending? The pages are still to be written in our own story. Everyone that stands in this room right now, we have our own story. The question is, how is it going to end? Heavenly Father, we know you love us. Are you calling us today? Are you shouting our name? Are we listening? Have we been trying to do things our own way? One foot in the grave, one foot out of the grave. Or is it time we get out of that grave and start living in a way that honors you? Living a new life. Living in a way that people say, there's something different about you. You're alive. And we look at them and say, yeah, I'm alive. Thanks to Jesus. All glory to him. 
God, there's a lot of people dying out there today. And I know you weep over that. Lord, help us to be a bunch of stone rollers. Help us to go out and find people who are dying and need you. Starts with us first. So God, if you're speaking to us this morning, you're calling our name, help us to surrender. Forgive us, God, of our sins. Forgive us of the bad things we've done. Make us new, make us alive. And God, maybe we've had one foot in the grave, one foot out. Maybe we need to step out. need to renew our commitment to you and start living in a way that's fully alive with your spirit at work in us. God, that's the sanctification process. That's a growing process. We want that. We ask for it. God, maybe we're in this room today and we're sitting there going, I'm there. I'm out of the grave. I want to be a stone roller. I want to be, I want to be there for Jesus. I want to help him roll the stones away so that other people can come to him. God, if that's us, fire us up, God. Strengthen us. God, we love you. We thank you. We've had this time to worship you. In thy name we pray. Amen. As we get ready to sing this song, if if as we're singing, you feel you need to come forward, come on forward. We'll pray with you. But as we sing, know this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's a good thing to know, isn't it? Let's sing. <laughs>